the reading corner today, I'm thrilled to be welcoming SF Saeed. Of course, SF is the author of Varjak Poor and the Outlaw Varjak Poor and Phoenix. But today it's a real delight because we get the chance to talk about his fourth children's novel, Tiger. There's going to be a lot to discuss in this very multi-layered story. But before we do that, I have a question uh, that's been burning. Burning is a good word for this book, actually. It's been burning inside me. And that is that in this current kind of climate where everybody is expected to write a book a year and to churn them out probably at the same month every year, I think it's been nine years since Phoenix was published. And I just wondered what that intervening period has been like for you? Has the book been gestating for that long? Um, Or do you have to wait quite a while for the idea to come along? Well, I I wish I could write a a book every year. And in some ways, I I write three or four books a year. Um, It's just that they're all versions of the same book. So I I write many, many drafts of each book. Varjak Poor, I worked on for five years. Tiger, I didn't think, you know, it could be worse than five years, but Tiger did take nine years to write. And yeah, I never thought a book could take that long, but it does feel worth it in the end because mm-hmm. I feel like there's a, there's an awful lot in it that I don't think I could have got if I'd done it in a year. Um, I feel like there's a, there's a real sort of solidity to the world, which kind of came from exploring lots of different worlds the world of tiger as you see it now is absolutely not where i began nine years ago not at all um and the characters i mean there was always a boy a girl and a tiger the tiger always was a tiger with a y this tiger always felt very real to me i felt like i could kind of see the tiger i could hear the tiger's voice um but beyond that almost everything else has changed in the time that I've been working on it. You know, it takes time and you've got to explore the infinite possibilities of a story. Stories are infinite. Literally anything can happen in a story. And I like to explore a lot of different possibilities before really going, okay, this is the very best version of this that I can imagine. I'm sure we're going to get into a lot of that uh, detail as as our conversation moves forward. Uh, But I think it's only fair to our listeners that we tell them a little bit about, you know, the story and what this book is about. So perhaps you could tell us in your words. Sure. Well, um, I think if I start with some of the inspirations of Tiger, that might help sort of set it up. So it really goes back to some of my own favourite childhood reading, Um, things like The Arabian Nights, uh, the poetry of William Blake, of course, his great poem, The Tiger. I'd have to add Susan Cooper, Alan Garner, Ursula Le Guin, and and more recently, of course, Philip Pullman and his Dark Materials, and Mallory Blackman's Noughts and Crosses books. Those stories that try to imagine other histories, other worlds, have meant so much to me that I've always really wanted to do one of my own. So Tiger is one of those. It's my attempt to do one of those. So the story is set in London in the present day, in the 21st century, but in a very, very different world, a world whose history is is very different to our own. In the world of Tiger, um, the British Empire has never ended. It's still going. Um, Slavery was never abolished. It is still going. 
Huge numbers of animals around the world have been hunted to extinction. There are no more tigers in that world. And yet, in that world, a boy called Adam finds something amazing, something impossible in a rubbish dump in the middle of London, the most unlikely possible place. He finds this mysterious, mythical, magical animal, a tiger. You've talked there about um, some of your literary influences. I wondered whether the book partially grew out of your last novel, Phoenix, as well, because I can see lots of connections between them. So interesting to hear. So I'm going to tell you something I don't think I've told anybody before, at least publicly. The tiger in Tiger actually began in Phoenix. In very early drafts of Phoenix, there was this tiger. And uh, it just didn't fit. You know, Phoenix is a story set in space on a spaceship among the stars. Tiger in a spaceship. It just felt wrong. So, but it felt so real to me, this tiger. So I, I... This sounds, I know, a little bit odd, but I turned to the tiger and said, look, I love you, but you do not fit in Phoenix. If you can just wait there patiently, I will write an entire book about you, but this is not that book. I went away and I wrote Phoenix, uh, which developed into the book it developed. And the minute I was done with Phoenix, the tiger was kind of growling in the corner. Come on, where's my book? And I just went straight to work, even though Phoenix had actually taken me seven years and I was exhausted at the end of that. All I wanted to do was explore this tiger and the world around the tiger. So, yes, you're absolutely right, Nikki. Tiger and Phoenix totally connected. But I feel like all my books are connected in some way. To me, there is some kind of line that goes through it all. It's not conscious or deliberate. It's it's just the stuff I'm drawn to. But this tiger, I can't really explain it. It was just mm. there. And uh, all I had to do was follow it, and it led me into this into mm. the book. Interesting. I felt also with um, Adam, your one of your main characters in Tiger and Lucky in Phoenix, that I felt lots of connections between them and where they're going ultimately um, in these stories too. It's really interesting. I mean, they're all characters who kind of start off very powerless, very helpless, really, um, knowing almost nothing about the worlds that they are in uh, and certainly nothing about what they can do. Gradually, through the course of a story, learning more and more about what they can do and discovering that within them is the power to do what is most necessary to do in the story. Then there's always a series of scenes in which my characters kind of learn certain kinds of skills, develop certain kinds of powers. I think of them as the training scenes, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in some of my favourite movies, you know, like Rocky. You know, you're always going to have these great training scenes. Star Wars, of course, where Luke Skywalker is learning to use the Force. Obviously, these things are massively influential for me. And, yeah, I I couldn't resist it. But I think the really big difference for me in Tiger and Varjak Paul while Jack is learning a martial art. In Phoenix, the power is a bit more cosmic, if you like. It's to do with channeling the power of the stars. But in Tiger, I think I did set myself a conscious challenge here. I kind of wanted the powers to be really things that all of us can do. So the powers are things like perception, imagination, and of course, creation, the power of creation. And then I kind of wanted to realize this through very specific things that, again, I think all of us can do, like writing, drawing. So Adam wants to be an artist. He loves drawing. 
But he's in a world where people of his background are not permitted to dream of being an artist. They just have to work really hard all the time. His best friend, Zadie, she really wants to be a writer. But again, she's not permitted to have those dreams or ambitions. And I guess one of the things I really wanted to do in Tiger was to, to set up the idea that writing or drawing could be superpowers that could change the world. And every single one of us has the ability to do these things. And if there's one thing I would love readers, particularly young readers, to come away from Tiger feeling, it's that they too could have this adventure. And the the powers that you've talked about there are shown to the children through these three doors that they have to enter or um, find keys to unlock. There's also a fourth power, isn't there, which is revelation. Yeah, there are powers upon powers, of course. Uh, But this goes back to William Blake. And I started to read his other writing. And, you know, there's this amazing phrase he has about the doors of perception. You know, if the doors of perception uh, were cleansed, I think he says we could we could see infinity. Uh, I forget the exact words, but yeah, the doors of perception, such a powerful image. And that's always struck me as what would they be? You know, could you imagine what they would be? And might there be other doors? Uh, and what would they be? Um, so, yeah, the, the doors, I feel like they're, they're quite a, a good, solid, physical image for you know how you can access these other levels inside yourself because Mm. really what adam and zadie are doing there is going deeper and deeper into themselves Mm. well i think we ought to hear a bit of this story it's from fairly early on um adam has met the tiger and the tiger's wounded okay so i'm going to read you chapter two of tiger it was very dark in the ruined building but as adam looked up his whole body shaking. He saw two points of light above him. The lights blinked like eyes, and then something erupted out of the darkness. Moving so fast, he saw only a blur at first, a streak of black and gold, leaping down from the roof beams to land on all four paws beside him. An animal, a gigantic animal, stood by his side, growling at the man with a knife. With one huge stride, she put herself between him and Adam. Then she threw back her head and roared as if protecting Adam from the knife. The man screamed. He ran. He fled through the door he'd come in by and was gone. Adam couldn't run. The animal still stood between him and the door. He could only stand there staring at her, his senses filling with a sweet, high, musky scent, like honeysuckle growing wild. In her presence, everything else just melted away, even his fear. His skin was prickling and his eyes were wide, but inside him was a feeling stranger than fear. For this animal had come down from the darkness to defend him. Why? And what was she? A flash of lightning revealed more of her form. She was ten feet long from her whiskers to her tail. So broad, she filled the doorway. Her fur was fiery gold with coal-black stripes. Time seemed to stop as she turned to look at Adam, and Adam looked back at her. He couldn't look away. He'd never been so close to any animal before, let alone one so huge and wild. Her eyes burned like liquid golden fire. They were shining with a light that was different to any light he'd ever seen. Yet he thought he saw pain inside them too. And now that she was facing him, 
he could see that she was wounded. There was blood on her fur, between her stripes, dripping wet and red. He breathed in sharply. Whatever she was, this animal was wounded. She shuddered as a blast of thunder shook the building. She turned and snapped at something over her shoulder, then growled when she couldn't reach it. As she twisted and turned, Adam crept round to one side and froze as he saw the shaft of an arrow sticking out of her shoulder. On the other side, he could see the arrowhead. This animal had been hunted. Someone had shot her, trying to kill her. The point of the arrow had passed right through her. All around it, the blood was dripping. Adam's throat went tight. She would die if that arrow stayed inside her, and she couldn't get it out herself. She had saved his life, but she needed help, even more than he did. Lightning flashed again. Thunder broke above the ruined building. The animal turned to face Adam. She stood very, very still and looked him straight in the eye. Every hair on his head prickled, but she didn't move a muscle didn't even twitch her tail. She just kept looking at him, impossibly sharp focus in those golden eyes. Slowly, as if in a dream, he held out a hand towards her. Still, she didn't move. He reached closer and closer. He could see now that the arrowhead was broad and barbed. It would never go back through. He had to pull it out instead. Adam's mouth was dry as dust as he touched the arrow's shaft. The animal held herself absolutely still as he snapped off the shaft below the wound and began to pull very carefully at the arrowhead, drawing it inch by inch from her flesh and fur, and still there was more. But he just kept pulling and pulling until finally it came all the way out. The animal sighed a huge sigh of relief. She slumped to the ground and began to lick her shoulder, licking and licking with her tongue, trying to stop the bleeding as the rain streamed down outside. Adam slumped down beside her. His knees felt weak as water, but somehow he had done it. He'd got the arrow out. I think you're going to be all right, he said to himself as much as to her. And that was when she spoke in a voice as clear and close as his own heart thumping in his throat. I thank you, she said. I thank you, O Guardian, for your help. I want you to read the rest of the book to me now. I'll just sit here for the rest of the interview and, and listen. I think some readers will draw connections between your tiger and C.S. Lewis's Aslan. Uh, but it seems to me that whereas... The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe and the Chronicles of Narnia are quite divisive um, from a religious point of view, that you uh, have a much more integrated approach here in terms of looking at the three Abrahamic religions and their connections. Well, that's a, that's a wonderful thing to hear. Um, I want Tiger to be as inclusive as possible. So whoever you are, whatever your background or beliefs might be, there, there should be a place for you in this story because I, I think there should be a place for everyone in, in the world. And I hope that stories can kind of reflect the world or imagine 
a world that we might want to imagine. So although Adam himself is is Muslim, um, there are Muslim, Christian and Jewish characters in the story. There are characters of no given faith at all as well. Um, there are characters of many, many different backgrounds, um, ages, uh, gender identities. Uh, I, I would like it, as I say, to be a book that everybody could find a place for themselves in. So I did a, a lot of work to to try and make sure that that was the case. What I want is for you to come away feeling that could be me. Obviously, Adam is a name that works across all of those three religions as well. Did you deliberately decide that you were going to have an A to Z? So Zadie, Zadie was always called Zadie. Um, Zadie is short for Shahrazad. I don't think uh, it's a massive spoiler to say that. But uh, she finds it quite difficult to be called Shahrazad in the in the London of that story. It's not a London that's very open or welcoming to, to anything perceived as other or different or foreign. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's kind of uh, adapted her name into, into Zadie. But uh, Adam, on the other hand, I mean, yes, he went through many, many different names. But I, looking at it now, I don't know how I could ever have thought it could have been anything other than Adam. And she's Zadie True, you know. And yeah, Adam and Zadie, A to Z, it, it does feel inevitable, doesn't it? Um, but that's an excellent example of how it might take an awful lot of work and trial and error to finally get to something that feels, yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. I think you know it when you see it. Now, all stories, I think... Well, no, I should never say all stories because I'll be proved wrong. Uh, But they need a good adversary. (laughs) And your Lord Maldehyde, for Maldehyde, (laughs) he's he's the one that's, we believe, hunting the tiger. He wants to really um, imprison things, land, people, animals. It's all about taking freedom away mm. yeah so mortimer maldehyde um i mean i find him really chilling <laughs> i find it really terrifying i guess he is the opposite of everything the tiger stands for the tiger is all about freedom you know is all about everyone can be anything you know whereas Sir mortimer maldehyde is all about taking things away taking things for himself um so yeah, I, I, I find him um, a kind of a terrifying embodiment of, well, some ideas that were very kind of current and um, accepted not that long ago and still are in, in some places, you know. So uh, the idea of conquest, empire, enslavement, the enclosure of land, you know, um, the phenomenon of menageries you know where animals are kept against their will you know all of these different kinds of ways in which well as you say exactly freedom is taken away um i suppose he's a sort of concentration of all of that but again i i kind of i wanted to make it clear that it's not just him you know there's a whole society which is operating in this way and um I think it's sometimes for me sort of disappointing in stories where you see, well, there's just a supernatural baddie and if we can defeat the baddie, everything's going to be all right. I think we have some kind of ultimate responsibility as human beings for 
how we live and how we organize our societies. So I hope there isn't a kind of an easy resolution that at the end of Tiger, I, I, I believe there's a lot of hope at the end. I feel it's a pretty uplifting ending, but it's not easy, you know, and it's not simply a matter of, you know, once you have dealt with this one figure, everything's going to be all right. It's a much deeper, wider, more systemic, you know, whole culture level change that is needed in that society. But various of the characters that we meet through the book, I hope, give us the feeling that, well, they could do that. You know, mm -hmm. they really could do that. There are all kinds of people who are open to the world being organized in a different way, a more kind of open, inclusive sort of way. And um, I personally, one of my favorite things in the book, not to spoiler anything, is like at the very you know end of the, the main story uh, before the sort of epilogue, you see some of those figures coming up from underground. Uh, and well, I hope I don't give too much away if I say they might include some kind of secret teachers and librarians that we've met during the course of the story. So, yeah, I, I, I think there, there has to be hope. But to me, that must be concentrated in people. You know, we can't just fix this all with, with a bit of magic. I'd like to talk a little bit more about William Blake, who um, clearly is referenced through the tiger right at the beginning. There are little phrases that are very reminiscent of the poem itself. Burnt the fire of thine eyes, says Blake. Her eyes burned like liquid golden fire. So there are quite a few of those, you know, the symmetry of the face and so on. Not quotations but echoes of Blake's poem but I also felt that I had echoes of Jerusalem coming through um, there's a bit where they're in the fields and they look down to London with all its chimney stacks and its factories and of course Blake's mythology because you do reference the character of and it's pronounced in so many different ways so I'm going to ask you to pronounce it your way <laughs> everyone does it differently I, I think of it as Eurizen but I've yeah. heard it as uh, Eurizen, Eurizen uh, all kinds of, I think of it as Eurizen a bit like Horizon something yeah like so like, not not that people need to know that to enjoy the story but clearly there's a lot of Blake yeah. and I just wanted to know a little bit about how you connect with him as a writer so the tiger comes from uh, an illuminated book called Songs of Innocence and of Experience. And that was a children's book. So William Blake, this was very much something he wanted kids to take away and read and enjoy. So to me, you know, while people talk about Lewis Carroll, you know, being at the beginning of children's literature, well, I mean, Blake's doing it like a hundred years before that, you know. I think the influence of Blake is obviously something really important to me. And, and because of the tiger leading me, into his work, yes, there are loads and loads and loads of resonances. If you are interested, I hope that might add a, a layer of richness to the text. But if you're not, really doesn't matter. Uh, and I think you know, kids coming to Tiger, you, you know, won't know any of that. What I hope they will feel is the kind of the power of the language. You know, they'll just feel, oh, that's exciting, burning bright. I mean, isn't burning bright a great little phrase? You know, the guy could put words together. Um, you know, clouds unfold. Uh, that's that's from um, Jerusalem, isn't it? So, yeah, to me, it's if you know, then it's going to give you something else. If you don't know, I hope it's just going to work as a story. If a child were to come away from it 
wanting to know more about William Blake, I think you could do wonderful work in uh, classrooms or libraries, introducing them to some of his work, maybe talking to them about his life, which is also absolutely fascinating. Mm. And there's a lot of that in the story of Tiger as well, references to all kinds of things. Mm. He was very much a, a visionary, I think. And I suppose when you read as a child, so this might bring me to the question about why writing for children, because I think when you read as a child, you're reading not only for your childhood self, but your future self. But the books that I read 50 years ago, they're still there inside me and I still remember them, but they mean something different. I only have a few of my childhood books in their kind of original uh, form, you know, but I still have the copy of Watership Down by Richard Adams that I, I read at the age of eight. I still have that thing. It's battered, tattered, but it's one of the most priceless treasures I will ever have in my entire life because it is part of me, exactly as you say. I think the books we love when we are young really do become part of us in a very, very deep way. They become part of our kind of emotional uh, autobiographies. Um, and yeah, they shape us at the deepest levels, the way we see the world, we think about what might be possible in the world, and the way we think about stories, you know, and what might be possible in them. You know, whenever I reread Watership Down, which I sort of do every few years now, it, it only ever seems richer and deeper to me. And I really don't think I, I could have written any of my books without that. I've been lucky enough now. So Varjak Paul was originally published in 2003. Uh, so there are people who are adults now, possibly even teachers now, who originally read Varjak Paul as children and are now passing it on to other children. I love that. I am, as a writer, somebody who's a reader, first and foremost, and is trying to write the one story they could have if they could have any story at all. That's the question I'm always asking myself. If I could read anything, what would it be? Now, I haven't anywhere near exhausted all the things that I wanted to talk to you about. But if we went through them all, you'd be exhausted by the end of it. So I'm going to leave it there, but with one final question. And I'm desperate to know what's at the top of your reading pile at the moment. What am I reading at the moment? I've just read Brave New World and Island by Aldous Huxley. I seem to be reading what I would call sort of very old science fiction. So this year, for example, I've been reading a lot of H.G. Wells, Conan Doyle, um, that kind of thing, um, sort of Victorian or Edwardian science fiction. I don't know why. I think you just have to follow your energy your instincts as a reader mm -hmm. whatever you find interesting and exciting at any given moment that is what you should read so who gets your vote hg wells or jules verne i'm definitely on the hg wells side of, of that one i mean I, I love jules verne he's he's a lot of fun but oh wells wow i mean i reread the war of the worlds and that stands up so well that is an absolutely terrifying novel. And I think it actually has some very, very interesting things to say about empire and conquest. Uh, but as I say, above all, the thing is a total page turner. Bang, bang, bang. You know, the sentences are short. The chapters are short. That's something that I love as a reader. I love it when a writer kind of gives me permission to go, OK, I'm just going to finish this chapter. 
oh, it's done already. Maybe I'll read another one. And before you know it, you've read the whole book. So that's something I'm always trying to do in my own writing. And I think for me, Wells definitely was brilliant at that. Thank you so much for joining me today in the reading corner. And I hope we have the chance to talk again in the not too distant future. I hope so too. Thank you so much for having me on. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. If you would like to find out about other events and courses, visit justimagine.co.uk. Join us again in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.